archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everybody, and this is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, on the theme that we have been pursuing over the past few weeks, uh, applications of archaeology to the present and specifically to forensic and disaster archaeology. Uh, we had uh, issued a program on Holocaust archaeology a couple of weeks ago. We will be talking in the next few weeks about forensic archaeology, mass ex- excavations, and in the uh, graves associated with the Saddam Hussein trial. And as sort of an interim uh arrangement and interim program to discuss the general theme of disaster archaeology, I have brought into the picture probably the founder of contemporary disaster archaeology, one of the uh, experts in the field and probably the founding member of the field uh, who a decade ago initiated the excavations at the 9-11 site in New York City, and that's Dr. Richard Gould. Uh, Dr. Gould is a uh, professor emeritus of archaeology at Brown University, a forensic anthropologist with the Federal Disaster Mortuary Operations Recovery team known as DMORT. Since completing his PhD in anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley in 65, 1965, uh, Richard Gould studied human cultural and behavioral adaptations to stress, risk, and uncertainty. He came to Brown University as professor in anthropology in 1981. After the uh, 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center in New York City, uh, Dr. Gould led trial forensic recoveries at the World Trade Center and full recoveries at the, uh, at the station nightclub fire scene in West Warwick, Rhode Island, where he developed a number of procedures and protocols. And this occurred in 19, in 2003. Most recently, Dr. Gould assisted with victim identifications and recoveries as a forensic anthropologist with DMORT in Gulfport, Mississippi, and in New Orleans, St. Bernard Parish, Louisiana, in the heels of Hurricane Katrina. Richard Gould has published 12 books and monographs, as well as numerous papers and articles in peer-reviewed journals. It is my pleasure and honor to welcome you, Dick Gould, to our program. Thanks so much for showing up. Well, Joe, thank you very much for inviting me. It's always good to hear from you, and I certainly appreciate the introduction. I can't believe I did all that. <laughs> well, you did, and, and as far as I'm concerned, you put disaster archaeology on the map. And in that connection, I would like for you to give us a little bit of background from your unique development as an anthropologist and archaeologist, because you had developed, obviously, a, a pretty significant reputation as an archaeologist and uh, subsequent to 9-11 and as a result of 9-11, your perspectives clearly changed. And I'd like for you to give us sort of your own personal background as to how you got into this and why you consider this transformation to be so significant. 
Well, Joe, uh, up until uh, the uh, 9-11 experiences, my career in archaeology was pretty much the scholarly career that most archaeologists in academe pursue. Uh, I was very much interested in stress, as you pointed out, and how people adapt to uncertainty and difficult conditions. But that was a that was basic research of a scholarly nature. I never imagined actually making use of this for uh, applied purposes. And uh, I had never really done any kind of applied archaeology before. Uh, this was a major change, and it was a, a, a realization uh, after visiting the site down in New York that archaeology had really had something important to offer, that there was something miss, missing from the picture down there. And what was missing specifically was the fact that the work being done, the recovery work, was all being done inside what was designated as the crime scene, namely Ground Zero. And you understand that that was kind of working inside the box. As I explored the area around the, the Ground Zero location, outside Ground Zero, I never actually set foot in Ground Zero myself, but outside there were abundant signs that the disaster scene itself was much bigger than Ground Zero. There were uh, human remains, identifiable human remains, scattered in various places in lower Manhattan and uh, in areas uh, all around, even though many had been Many of these areas had been power washed already by the city. They were still there. And later on, we, as you pointed out, we led a trial excavation under the uh, auspices of the, of the medical examiner's office in New York to try to sort of determine to what extent this might have been true. As you know, a tremendous number of victims were never identified. Never, their remains were never found. The city, of course, has worked tirelessly to find these and identify them, but at this late date, this is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, we realized that there was a huge area of, of unidentified material that wasn't going to be treated uh, in any kind of controlled way, the way, for example, the police might treat a crime scene. And that's when I got the idea of organizing a team, training it, getting all the expert advice we could, especially from JPAC. Now, you, I think you had a program earlier on JPAC, we and did, yes. Yes, they're based here in Hawaii, where I live now. And I have some very good friends there who were absolutely wonderful in giving us training and coaching and kind of directing our efforts. So that even though we were new to this, we had some awfully good advice on the way down. And one thing kind of led to another. Who would have thought, for example, that uh, having done that, that a year later that we would have it right on our own front doorstep in Rhode Island? And, of course, you mentioned the station nightclub fire. And in this case, the, uh, the governor's office and the state fire marshal uh, invited us to come in. This was a group that we had formed called Forensic Archaeology Recovery, a volunteer group who trained. Most of them are uh, archaeological students who had field archaeology experience, but also we had a large contingent from the Providence Police. Uh, their entire forensic unit joined us as well. And so we formed a team that went down and, and wound up basically – uh, running a very large part of the whole operation down there for a couple of weeks and doing what we could to uh, identify victims but also to recover personal effects and try to find out something about the crime scene itself. So not surprisingly, when Hurricane Katrina came along in 2005, once again, 
uh, I got involved, although more from the forensic anthropology point of view. That is actually working with human remains, assisting with identifications, and then also doing recoveries as well in the field. So all of a sudden, a lot happened in a very short time, and I think we learned something, which was that archaeology can play an essential role, uh, sometimes a critical role, in this type of activity. Uh, we haven't had enough attention paid, really, to the post-disaster relief effort, the recovery process. A lot of effort goes into the first response, and most of the training seems to be in that direction. But uh, there hasn't been a commensurate amount of training in the post disaster recovery phase, and this is something we're kind of urging people to take more seriously because we found out how important it is. It can last a long time, and it can be a very difficult process, but uh, we've now understood that we can play a key role as archaeologists in assisting with this process. So now we sort of understand things better, and we kind of hope nothing terrible is going to happen anytime soon. We are not eager to go rushing out and encounter any more mass fatality disaster scenes we hope we aren't going to have any to deal with, but that's wishful thinking. Anything can happen, as you know. As, as it does. I think, uh, Dick, one of the interesting things and, and one of the interesting perspectives that you brought to this entire situation is the archaeological method, which in your case, and we've discussed it at, at length, we've talked about how your perspective on the actual area of effect uh, differs so significantly from the actual bomb scene or the actual direct impact area. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how the archaeological perspective sort of winds, widens sort of the perimeters of the impact area? Because you mentioned a, a number of things in connection with, with, with the 9-11 situation where you're finding uh, artifacts and, and uh, findings uh, well outside the zone of impact. Well, your point is is very good, uh, Joe. You're you're right about the 9/11 case, the ground zero effect, we could call it, which was to sort of artificially limit the area of investigation, to limit the size and scope of the crime scene, when in fact the total area that was affected was much bigger. And it, as archaeologists, why, of course, one of the first things we do in in recording any kind of a scene, whether it be a conventional archaeological site or a disaster scene. Uh, is to map it and to determine exactly how big it really is and measure, if we can, uh, what the effects have been over the larger area. And many times the, the halo of, of effect is much bigger than that limited crime scene. This has had a very interesting effect, too, with the pro police that we worked with from Providence, from the Bureau of Criminal Identification, or BCI, they this broadened their horizons too they were people who were very skilled in crime scene investigation and were very open to these kinds of of ideas and as they saw us bringing in new techniques such as the use of a total station for example that is a, a kind of a laser mapping device uh, which speeds the process and gives you a lot better and more accurate coverage over a big area why they started to do it themselves and and saw for themselves that sometimes the crime scene was a whole lot bigger than they originally thought. So that was one of the immediate byproducts of all of this, and I think that awareness is growing, too. I, I think uh, law enforcement and emergency services people are picking up the ball on this, and I am glad to see it, although we still need to put more effort into this post-disaster recovery process. And on that note, uh, we will be back with uh, Dr. Richard Gould, 
uh, and discuss the ramifications and implications of archaeological approaches to disaster archaeology after these words. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward, but upward. A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We are back. Uh, this is Joe Schildenrein, as we mentioned, and this is our program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, 21st Century Archaeology. And uh, the theme of our program today is disaster archaeology, and it is a new, relatively new subfield that has to large measure been developed by my guest, Dr. Richard Gould, a professor emeritus at Brown University. And Dick, uh, this was an evolutionary situation for you as well, I guess starting with 9-11 and then sort of proceeding through a number of disaster sites, which unfortunately unraveled in the first decade of the 21st century. Why don't you discuss and tell us a little bit about how you developed the goals of disaster archaeology and how that entire methodology and system evolved. 
Well, Joe, those disasters that you mentioned, the, the World Trade Center and the Station Nightclub fire in Rhode Island and Katrina, especially in the uh, New Orleans and Gulfport areas, was a real learning experience for me. And as you said, it was an evolution, a very rapid one, as it turns out, trying to sort of see clearly how good archaeological science connects with this type of, of applied activity. And first thing to realize is, of course, that this is a form of forensic science. And the word forensic, of course, has people somewhat confused at times. What is it exactly that makes a forensic science, or particularly a forensic archaeologist, different from other archaeologists? Well, it's interesting. Forensic, the word forensic, is actually a Greek word, and it means debate. And people say, what? Uh, what does that mean? Well, actually, it's very relevant because the debate takes place in the courtroom. In other words, when you collect evidence, physical evidence, at a crime scene or a disaster scene, uh, as an archaeologist would do in a controlled way, recording everything as you find it, and then transmitting it from the scene, uh, it has to be acceptable in a court of law, which means you have to be prepared to to withstand challenges by opposing lawyers. You have to prepare ahead of time and make sure that your arguments and interpretations will stand up. And that's a very, very tall order. Um, in archaeology, we're used to what I like to call the court of history. That is, we're finding archaeological evidence and making conclusions about the past, but it's a kind of a remote past. Uh, at least it's not the immediate past. And it doesn't necessarily involve or affect the lives of people today, you know, their fortunes, their reputations, their lives in some cases, which is what happens in the court of law. Now, I've had colleagues of mine, forensic scientists, say, oh, you archaeologists are just a bunch of softies and you're making up stories all the time to go with the evidence that you find. And unfortunately, that is true sometimes. That's the real Indiana Jones effect. But that won't fly in court. That is not acceptable. Uh, it's, it's a very, very different atmosphere in court. I like to say that Indiana Jones doesn't live here, meaning you won't get very far in terms of your credibility if you attempt to make up stories a la Indiana Jones. So we have a whole bunch of approaches that are much more like the forensic scientists around us, the other specialists, who are also anticipating challenges in court. And we have a whole bunch of procedures and protocols. I won't go into a great deal of detail about them. But the archaeology we do is still solidly recognizable archaeology. It's the same basic archaeology that we all learn as good archaeological science when we're doing our graduate studies and then go out and work professionally, whether we're working as academics or as professional archaeologists. Those same skills apply. The question is how do we apply those skills to scenes like disaster scenes where so much is riding on the results and where you have to get it right. That's the important part. Uh, and that's what takes us beyond Indiana Jones and into the, into the domain of credibility. Yeah, now, I, think, I think you're right about that. And I, I, I was just going to ask you one particular question. One of the ways in which the scenarios that you're describing 
vary so much from traditional archaeology is is uh, immediate post disaster. There is so much going on. There's so much coordination involved, and archaeology, as you say, is largely an academic venture. And how did you come to realize that you have to develop a protocol that has to take very significantly into account the fact that there's so much going on, and and there's a need for so much quick work to be done, and so much coordination, and so many other parties involved. Why don't you run us through that scenario and, and how you hit upon a f- formula for doing that based on your experience? Well, you, you'll remember I mentioned JPAC and the way they coached us. We had a, a day-long conference at, at Brown University uh, shortly after 9-11, and we invited the uh, gentleman, uh, Bill Belcher, Dr. Bill Belcher. You may know him. He, oh, I know him well, yeah. He's the deputy director of JPAC, and Bill gave right. us all kinds of very useful advice and also gave us copies of their protocols, which is in the way of protocols, we shamelessly plagiarized for our own use. Right. And, uh, you know, this is an area where plagiarism is acceptable. This is not acceptable <laughs> in scholarly archaeology. Right. But let it's... me tell you, we are always reading each other's protocols and trying to learn things from them, and that was what happened this time. So I don't claim to invent, have invented anything here. But, you know, it encouraged me to reach out and contact the other authorities and agencies involved. You have law enforcement, you have emergency disaster services, you have community support groups of all kinds. And if you're going to do this kind of thing, the quicker you get in touch with them and communicate with them about your role, the easier it's going to be. And, of course, you also have to follow all sorts of procedures that are now more standard in emergency services throughout the United States, like the Incident Command System, or ICS, and that's a requirement. Everybody has to know that in order to function effectively at one of these scenes. As you pointed out, the scene itself can be quite chaotic, and, and, and things are happening fast. And it's essential that you have this kind of a, a guidebook or roadmap to follow to tell you how to interact, who to go to, for example, to find the incident commander or to know where to put your equipment or to check in properly. There are many, many things here that an ordinary scholarly archaeologist wouldn't expect to have to do. And then there are special procedures like the so-called chain of custody or chain of evidence where whenever you uh, collect a piece of evidence on the scene and record it, it has to be transmitted under controlled conditions. In other words, someone is responsible at every stage, signs off for it, and as it moves across from the crime scene or the disaster scene, to maybe the medical examiner's evidence room or the police evidence room, where it's kept until the courtroom proceedings actually get going. Uh, now, this kind of, of careful attention to detail like that does happen in archaeology. I mean, I think we are more and more starting to realize how important it is to do that. But this is to meet some very specific legal and medical requirements that are going to come up later when this thing goes to trial. So that's a that's a, a very big set of skills that archaeologists who do this kind of thing have to learn. And there are a lot of others. I like to call it archaeology at warp speed because we look for ways to speed the process without sacrificing accuracy if it's at all possible. And I mentioned the total station. That's a very valuable tool now, and it's widely used in archaeology. But there are a lot of other ways. We, We do call them shortcuts, but as long as we're not compromising the evidence, I don't see a problem. Archaeologists are accustomed to working very slowly and methodically, and that's good. But we don't have that luxury. The authorities are always asking us, when are you going to be finished? How long is this going to take? 
and we have to be ready with some real answers because it's all uh, dependent on their timetables as well as ours. I think one of the advantages, though, and I think you'll agree with me on this, is that as archaeologists, we are sort of inherently attuned to a team philosophy and we cooperate with interdisciplinary groups all the time when we have a perspective that recognizes the potential contributions of, of various disciplines and various teams and I think that's to our benefit and in this particular case I think you yourself you've told me this I know on occasion that that you were a very satisfied to see how how the various groups, the police and the first responders and the archaeologists were able to interact. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the details of that? Well, at the micro level, that is, when you're actually on the scene and actually recovering evidence, we found the best kind of task group is a three-person team, usually two trained field archaeologists and someone, a, a police investigator or detective, and uh, that this is a, a marvelous working group. Uh, that is, there's wonderful give and take, different complementary skills, and the experience of the police investigators is a is a very important part of this because someone, an archaeologist coming at this from, say, the more academic side, may not be quite ready to deal with the situation. It's confusing. It's chaotic. Uh, police people uh, and and other you know firefighters and so on are experienced they've been through this and they can certainly help you through that so we've found that these small work groups you could have as many of them as you want on the site of course it depends on the size and complexity of the site but that's the ideal i would say small group and one of the things we always insist on in this type of thing is that everybody watch over everybody else we have protocols for safety and health which are essential and are much more rigorous, really, than standard archaeology. But that doesn't relieve individuals of the responsibility of watching out for their buddies. And what you want is a working group that's small enough so that you can really keep an eye on people and make sure, for example, that no one is working alone. That's very hard duty. You don't want to let people work in that situation. Stresses on that are so great that uh, this is just not a good idea. This is stress city we're talking about. So, So we have extra responsibilities as a team that go beyond the, the more normal uh, ones that you, you do in the field. Now, at the, the macro level, of course, we're m- working with much bigger groups. We're actually part of a much larger team, which includes all sorts of, of uh, law enforcement and emergency services specialists. And again, we have to respect their protocols. This is why the incident command system is such a useful tool, because it actually coordinates these things. And we require our volunteers always to have to be familiar with those and to have completed a series of courses that are uh, put out by uh, either by FEMA or by Health and Human Services. Uh, and those, again, keep the, they broaden the size of the team, but they make sure that we're all reading from the same page. And on that note, we will return after a few words, and uh, we will be back and discuss disaster archaeology and its aftermath with uh, Dr. Richard Gould. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Voice America Variety Channel presents a program like no other for those in the field and interested in the field of security and training. On America's front lines of crime and war with Victory Defense Consulting, hosted by J.J. Sutton. Here, listeners are learning about tactical skills and practices that support efficient, smarter, and more enduring skills. You will receive the most up-to-date information about the security and training industry with detailed discussions and select special guests each week. Tune in to On America's Front Lines of Crime and War, Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. Uh, we're discussing the objectives and goals of uh, disaster archaeology, the investigations of the scenes of the disaster, and what we're trying to accomplish with uh, Dr. Richard Gould, Professor Emeritus at Brown University. Dick, you were uh, telling us about the goals, and you were uh, getting into some detail. Why don't you expound on that just a little bit further so that we get a real feel on what, what's needed to be done? Well, sure. Uh, it's, there's, there's a couple of primary goals that disaster archaeology has encountered and what we're trying to develop. The first is try to understand what happened. Now, this is very much like regular archaeology. In other words, we're investigating the scene in order to reconstruct the events that surrounded the occurrence. If it's a disaster scene, this may involve not only the actual causes of the disaster or its immediate effects, but also its long-term effects on people involved. So we are, in fact, uh, looking at events both very close in a very fine-grained way, and also we're looking at larger events that may affect that. Then we have the second question, and this is a very, very emotionally charged question, which who were the victims? And this is 
aiding in the victim identification process, which is a very difficult process. Uh, in order to do this, you have to have all kinds of procedures to get it right. And I can tell you from having worked in this area that uh, the people who do this are really painstaking and don't take anything for granted, which is the right attitude. Now, there's a strong humanitarian impulse to doing this kind of work, especially the victim identification side of it. And as Joe has mentioned, there are organizations like DMORT and others, uh, JPAC we've talked about too, and when these organizations go to work, they encounter a problem or a couple of problems. They encounter the concept of justice, which is, of course, a culturally constructed notion of what a society thinks is equitable and fair and just. And that's open to all kinds of manipulation and a very difficult area for us to get into, yet at the same time when forensic evidence and archaeological materials are introduced in court as evidence, invariably that comes up. And then there's the question of closure. Closure is a very hard term to define. I'm not sure I can define it. Uh, yet we know that people everywhere desperately need some sort of completion of the whole process, identifying their relatives, their loved ones, in some fashion, and, and then memorializing them in some way. Uh, this seems to be a basic universal impulse. I don't know if I would call it cultural construction or not. That remains to be seen, but it's certainly there. So even though you can't easily define closure, it's there, it's real, and that's one of the most important things what we're trying to accomplish is to provide ba a basic set of information for that kind of closure. And uh, the... Uh, um, yeah, I guess one of the issues on the closure question, and, and it's critical because now that, that we see so much information, so we see so, the evidence for so many disasters and catastrophes, and you, you know, you watch the news and you watch the, the, the TV shows, and uh, a closure is obviously a very, very individual response, and so that people affected in the same particular uh, incident or the same disaster, their responses are so widely different. Um, how do you how do you deal with that? Do you actually approach various the specific individuals and and talk to them about what they want to see and where they want to go? And do you to what degree is this an individual versus a group type of situation when you try to address this question of closure? Well, Joe, you're absolutely right. Uh, closure is all over the place among different families and individuals. Uh, their expectations can vary <clears throat> very widely and become very emotionally charged. And generally, when we're doing this kind of work, we try to buffer our teams from the, the vic direct contact with the victims' families. It's, uh, it, it's too burdensome for them to do good, controlled, scientific work in the field while they're having uh, this constant sort of barrage of emotionally charged uh, people in the background. Now, having said that... <clears throat> I mean, that would be nice, but many times it doesn't work that way. I remember very vividly at the station fire in Rhode Island, having lived in Rhode Island for then about 24 years, that, uh, and, and the fire marshal likewise as an old resident. I mean, this was unavoidable. We knew some of the families that were involved. They would come to the fence at the crime scene and, and hang out there and then wave to us, and you know, they wanted to know what we were doing, and, and we were really working in a goldfish bowl. Fortunately, most of our field workers were students and people who didn't have those kind of direct ties to the community, so they were spared that. 
And, you know, in most forensic sciences, at working in a morgue or portable morgue or something, you don't have any direct contact. It's hard to do that kind of work if you do. On the other hand, we're very, very much aware of the needs of these folks, and we're, that's what motivates us. That's the humanitarian impulse that drives all of this kind of work. And I, I applaud it. I think people who choose to do this, it's clearly not for everybody. There's a lot of stress. You see a lot of really ugly things sometimes. And uh, it's, it's really not something that I would ever try to talk someone to doing. But I also know there are a lot of people who want very much to do it, who feel that they need to be there and assisting in some way. And we, what we want to do is find positive ways to do that. Uh, this, is a, this is a very difficult process, but we're learning as we go. One of the biggest things that we've learned from this is that all disaster archaeology, in fact, all disaster responses of every kind, all mass fatality disasters, occur in a, in a political context. There's always politics, a lot of it, in fact. And it's, it's very difficult to keep that under control. Uh, more and more we've come to realize that our field workers and people who do this kind of thing need to be at least politically aware. It doesn't mean they shouldn't do it. In fact, far from it. We're not asking people to not do this kind of work because it has political implications, but just to understand what those implications might be. Uh, now, Joe, I know you, you had a lot to do with the, the uh, identification recovery in, of Kurdish uh, victims in Iraq, in the mass graves of Iraq under Saddam Hussein's regime. That's correct, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's another kind of, you might say, loosely defined, another kind of disaster archaeology, a different sort perhaps than what we're thinking about otherwise, but still a mass fatality scene at, that calls for this type of work. And certainly the work that was done there was ab admirable. I, I was very, very impressed, and you and I have both discussed this at some length. We at have. the same time, you know, this, this whole thing in Iraq raises interesting political problems. Uh, the humanitarian impulses that took people out there and, and that generated all of this work, uh, in retrospect, could easily be interpreted as a political sort of support for a change in American policy. I mean, the initial impulse to go into Iraq militarily was this idea of weapons of mass destruction. And when none of those were found, at least in a convincing way, then the whole issue became a kind of ex post facto argument for the, the punishment, the capture and punishment of Saddam Hussein and his, his cronies. Now, the, these were real bad guys. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But the, the, the nature of the, of the whole thing sort of changed. It became a different war based on different expectations. And all of a sudden, the Kurdish graves emerged as major heavy-duty evidence to support the notion that Saddam and his group had committed serious crimes against humanity. I uh, think you're absolutely right. And, and I, and, I wouldn't know. say to anyone, don't do it because of this, because the, you might be somewhat manipulated in this, but at the same time, I think anyone going to do it has to know what they're getting into. So we, we do talk about this a great deal. Is it wise, in other words, to rush in? I think you have to think carefully about what the other implications might be. Are you really fostering some sort of a, a set of political goals that weren't really yours in the first place? 
I think you're right. And, and to speak to that particular issue, if I might just for a second, uh, as you know, and we've discussed this and we'll be discussing this further in a separate segment, we were recruited to be, to be part of this operation. And we had a tremendous amount of trepidation and reservation about the original motivation to go into this. And uh, Sonny Trimble, who you know as very well, I know, yes. uh, basically when he recruited us to get involved in this, uh, we expressed this to him and he said, keep in mind that Saddam Hussein was really a very, very bad guy. And we thought about it a lot. And when we realized that we were looking at Kurdish graves, that were Kurdish uh, populations that were being transported to the south and deliberately massacred, uh, we all of a sudden said, you know, there is an opportunity here to do something that is absolutely right, at least uh, in, in terms of a humanitarian objective. And one of the things that emerged out of that was an unanticipated unanticipated result, which was that we as archaeologists were able to put our foot, feet down, foot down actually, and convince the American military that it was absolutely necessary to repatriate these graves to the Kurds up north. That was not part of the program, but we put our foot down and said, this has to be done again, as you said, for purposes of closure. If we're well, going to do it, this, it gets you beyond right. the political side of it, too. Yes, I mean, it does. I mean, yes. this is the payoff. And if we're timid about that, if we allow ourselves to be pliant and to be manipulated by the politicians, then we're never going to sell the idea of disaster archaeology. It'll, it'll always be uh, sort of manipulated for somebody else's uh, political goals. And Absolutely. I think it's very, what you've said is very important, which is you have to take charge. Yeah, and I think, you know, you and I have both talked about this, especially in many academic circles where they say, well, the moment you get involved in this thing, you basically cast your lot with the government or that program. That's and right. That's, you're, you're accused yeah. of being tainted. That's and, exactly and, right. And, and you need to know how that could happen, and you need to take precautions, safeguards. I mean, there are a lot Absolutely. of bad guys out there, and, and it would be totally inappropriate for us to rush in and try to do this sort of thing at every turn. Uh, you know, that, that's out of the question. But given the opportunity, as we were, I think it was the right thing to do. That's in correct. this case, in yeah. Iraq, I think very much so. Yeah, I, I'm interested, and, and we'll get back to this in a little bit because we have to uh, take yet another break. Uh, what you thought about the politics related to uh, your three big cases, and the ones that I'm considering here are 9-11, uh, the station fire, which was a much more intimate operation where you were so involved because you were part of the community, and finally in the Katrina disaster. And we will get back to these issues after these words with Dr. Richard Gould. We'll be right, we'll be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? 
You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back uh, in our final segment discussing uh, the entire question of disaster archaeology by uh, one of the leading authorities in the field and and one of the authorities who actually mapped out some of the protocols for undertaking disaster archaeology. Uh, we're talking as well about the political ramifications and the concluding scenarios that, that get established in the wake of disasters in archaeology and the resolution of the circumstances uh, that are associated with the disaster. And, Dick, why don't you tell us a little bit uh, of what we had just been discussing with respect to the Rhode Island situation, the Station House disaster, that you were so clearly involved in, not just because of your professional expertise, but as part of the community in which this disaster occurred. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, Joe, that that whole thing was quite remarkable. I mean, we didn't see it coming, but when it occurred, it was a, uh, a nightclub, a cheesy nightclub that had a uh, rock group, a series of rock groups, but the big attraction was a group called the Great White. And they liked to start their shows with pyrotechnics. And when they did, the place just exploded, and people were rushing to get out a uh, uh, hundred people died in the fire and about 200 more were very very seriously burned it was a major disaster in a small state like rhode island we notice this sort of thing perhaps more than you do in a big place uh, because there is this community that you mentioned and uh, a number of us were very connected to it so we had to come to terms with this and it was uh, uh, one of the most important things that came out of this was the fact that we had uh, three criminal indictments arising from the fire, plus 46 civil suits. That's the largest number of civil suits following any kind of incident of any sort in the history of the state. Now, court proceedings take quite a while, and when we're on scene and when we're being besieged by the media and the press, it's very important to be careful about what you say. You can't start talking about the evidence in any specific way because there's a danger of tainting or compromising the court procedures that follow later. Uh, this, is a, this is part of this chain of custody or chain of evidence I mentioned earlier. It's, 
it, it's a way of controlling the information. People may be annoyed with you for not giving them all the information, but that's that's for the court to decide. So anyway, we were restricted. I, uh, we had a single uh, spokesperson who would issue regular bulletins and meet with the press and, and give them what information we could, and that continued afterwards. But we were always limited in the amount of specific evidence that we could talk about until the cases were settled. Well, those cases have now been settled. Six months ago, the last civil suit was settled. So now it's possible, actually, to talk more openly about the kinds of evidence that we encountered in this, in this whole crazy process. Um, for example, one of the things that emerged in all of this uh, were cell phones. Now, this is a new wrinkle in forensics. Uh, we had cell phones on the site. We had cell phones encountered in, of all things, body bags. Sometimes they were working and would go off, and we'd answer them and try to find out whose phone it was, which usually wasn't too hard to do. When this took place, and it happened repeatedly, uh, I had to point out something, a kind of archaeological principle that applies in such cases. We call it the principle of association which is that we have to establish clearly a physical association between the victim and the particular piece of evidence, in this case a cell phone. The uh, folks down in the medical examiner's office and sometimes the police were sort of jumping the gun. They were, they were assuming that if the cell phone belonged to so-and-so, it must be that person's, and therefore we've identified the body. And I said, wait, 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 you've got to be very careful here. Unless there's some physical evidence tying the cell phone to the body, like, for example, if it's in the pocket of a, a of the pants or jacket or attached in some other way, then that, that provides a physical connection that's pretty solid. But, right. but again, remember, people borrow cell phones, too. So, in other words, there were lots of archaeological issues that arose that, that many of the folks on the scene weren't aware of, and those have become a very important part of the evidence. And now I think we can start to sort through them and, and determine just how useful this kind of information is. So what did you come up with when you say there were 46 cases settled? How did they get resolved and, and uh, what kind of procedures and protocols did, were, did, you, did you have to go through and are they un, under appeal or has this largely been worked out to the satisfaction of the victims and victims' families? Well, a lot of the cases, of course, were settled out of court. That's the way they usually do these things. And As in there are many situations. issues I won't even go into about how the lawyers conducted themselves. We, we have some very <laughs> strange lawyers down in Rhode Island, I'll tell you. Um, mm -hmm. Some of them are real ambulance chasers. And, and, and so, you know, I call them sleazebag lawyers, and they're, they're really something. They're a piece of work. So the whole process got a little messy at times. Now, I was given some very good advice early on in this whole process. A very good friend and colleague of mine, Richard Wright, he's an Australian who has worked extensively in the former Yugoslavia doing forensic work, and he is was at the University of Sydney. He's now retired. And he said, look, he said, the best thing that can happen is if you've nailed your evidence down so well, you've established it so clearly, that lawyers won't want to bring it up in court. And as they go through the process of discovery and as you give testimony in depositions, uh, it should become apparent that this is something they would rather not deal with because they can't handle it. They, he said, if you can avoid having to actually testify in court, that's good. And I'm happy to say that 
all of this, I mean, we, I went through this whole process of, of, you know, disclosure and and handing over all kinds of evidence. They, they got all the written evidence, all the images, everything, and then, of course, I gave depositions. And at the end of the day, I wasn't called to testify in any of those cases. And I, I would like to think it was because the evidence was so rock solid, they didn't dare touch it. They didn't, they couldn't challenge it. Maybe that's, that's wishful thinking. Maybe other factors were at work, too, but... But uh, I'm sure that if we had made mistakes in the handling of the evidence, it would have been noticed right away, and someone would have pounced on it. Anyway, the actual criminal cases were all settled, and the people involved have all served their sentences. They're free now. And the other, the, the other suits are mostly suits that were settled out of court, so I don't think there's any, any appeal process. How how you'd feel about those settlements is another matter. We won't go into that. That's a whole other area. That's that's not right. nothing to do with archaeology. But it looks like you know. It, I mean, the this, this station accident occurred in two thousand three. So here you are nine years later, which is not really that long a timeline for a legal procedure to get resolved, right? It's about average, I think. Yeah. And you know, I was warned about this. Again, the police said, "Now you know." Remember that if you are called to testify, you're going to have to bring out your notes and, you know, make sure that everything you did is recorded so that you can, uh, you, you can answer those questions. Uh, I'll give you another example. This is another lesson we learned in handling of evidence. Um, I was about to embark on a site plan, a map of the site showing all the different features that we had, had recorded. This is a standard part of archaeological research, as you know. Sure. It's a standard, yeah, yeah it's not even, not, Disaster archaeology, it's good regular archaeology. Standard archaeology, yeah. Right. And one of the police who had a lot of experience came up to me, one of our team, and said, now, wait a second, he said. How, uh, how is this map of yours going to relate to the plan that was drawn by the West Warwick police when they first came on scene as first responders? And I had seen their plan. It was actually a good job that they did. But it was a very different kind of plan from ours. And he said, you know, what will happen in court is that they'll some lawyer, some some bright spark is going to get up and hold up both plans, both the West Warwick police plan and our plan, and look for discrepancies. They'll compare them and they'll see differences, which of course they will, and then they'll treat those as discrepancies, which will undermine the credibility of both maps. And he said, how are you going to deal with that? And I realized he was giving me very good advice. And so I, I said, well, here's what I could do. I can write a, a sort of a note at the beginning of, you know, with the map explaining that this is for archaeological purposes only and in no way challenges the, the original map produced by the West Warwick police and use that as a way of anticipating what these lawyers are likely to do. So I did that. And we went ahead and did our map, which is a very detailed map, and it proved to be very important and was never challenged. And on that note, Richard, I'm afraid we're going to have to bring the discussion to an end. Uh, we have had a marvelous discussion with Dr. Richard Gould on disaster archaeology, and I'm hopeful that we will get a large response to this because people have expressed a great interest in this particular topic. And I want to thank you, Dr. Gould, for being part of this program, and I wanted to 
uh, invite you at a future day to discuss this uh, question of disaster archaeology in a variety of other contexts related to archaeology, forensic science, and catastrophes in general, and how we form conclusions both in the past, present, and future, and going forward as sort of an instructive protocol for how to, to deal with these situations, which unfortunately still loom ahead of us. And on that note, I want to say goodbye to everybody, and thanks so much for listening. We'll be back again at the same time next week. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.